You may open with me to an opening passage of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Brethren, let us today learn as much as we can from primarily one chapter about the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For most of us, having been raised Baptists, we have never seen the need for a priest because we know there are no priestly offices of the New Testament except for our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Yet, men need a priest. There is no man that can go to God himself without a priest. And so men have needed priests for peace with God. The patriarchs, those are the great fathers. You know, we do follow the fathers, the church fathers. It's just not the church fathers that sit on library shelves. It's the fathers of the period of time from Adam to Moses. Because they are called the patriarchs. Abel, Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were their own priests. The patriarchs were their own priests, could build altars. God would receive their sacrifices, the shedding of blood. God would give them visions. They were prophets in some, in some cases. And so they were able to intercede for themselves and for their families before the Lord. Along came Moses and established the Levitical priesthood from Mount Sinai and the days that followed in the book of Exodus. And then Leviticus, which contains the rules and regulations for the Levitical priesthood. And then there's more in the book of Numbers as well. We need a priest, someone to go and do religious things for us with God. That can earn God's approval and acceptance and favor toward us. We need a mediator. Someone that will go and mediate between two parties that are opposed to each other. And God is opposed to sinners. He is angry with the wicked every day. Right. We are his enemies by nature. Right. And so we need a mediator to mediate, to arbitrate peace. We need a daysman. As Job put it, Amen. a daysman who can put his hand on me and his hand with the Lord and make peace between the two of us. We need a suitable go-between that can earn the favor of God toward us, that can reconcile our sins so that we can be at peace with God. The Old Testament highly emphasized the priesthood that came out of the tribe of Levi and that came out of the loins of Aaron. All the priests came out of Aaron. Aaron was just one of the sons of Levi. Not even a direct son, but a son. And so there were the Levites who did the menial tasks around the tabernacle and the temple. And there were the priests that were involved in the direct service and worship of God. They came from Aaron and his sons. And the Old Testament lifts them up very highly because they were God's chosen Daysmen, mediators, go-betweens for that covenant. Last Lord's Day, I told you a little bit about that covenant and what you had to do to obtain the forgiveness of sins. I think I was standing about right here when I said some pretty hard things from the Old Testament. If you were guilty of a sin of ignorance, that is, God had shown it to you, 
Or if you knew that you ought to go confess the sins of ignorance you didn't even know you had committed, then you were to take a female lamb or a female kid of the goats and take it to the priest and you put your hand on it and you take your knife and slay that animal for sins of ignorance. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you were to bring two turtle doves, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. And you were to take that turtle dove with its heart beating panically in your hands and wring its head from its neck, according to Leviticus chapter 5. You were to pop its head off. Because that spraying blood and that warm body in your hands, the life that you just ended was to teach you that sin has consequences. The wages of sin is death. And so, there were so many animals and birds killed under the old covenant. Some by the priests, and some by you, even for sins of ignorance. And we looked at that, and we said, Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us from such a horrific religious system as the Old Testament. But that Old Testament had a purpose. It was a schoolmaster. And that schoolmaster was looking at us and holding his hickory stick and teaching us, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not adequate. There is no strength or saving power in this. You need a real savior. You need a real priest. And so that's what Galatians chapter 3 tells us the Old Testament was for. To bring us to Christ. Now brethren. We are considering something. That the Holy Spirit considers important. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews 3 1. Wherefore. He has just dealt in verse 17 of the previous chapter. With Jesus Christ being a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God. He says this. Wherefore. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This is something we should consider because the Bible tells us to consider it. When the Bible tells me what to consider, I'm thankful to the Lord for making it so plain. So we are going to consider today that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the high priest of our profession. Our profession is to be Christians. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ and we trust for eternal life through him. Paul told us to do this. How about chapter 8 and verse 1 in the same book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now Paul has just gone through the chapter that we're going to go through, but look what he says when he gets to the end. Now of the things which we have spoken... This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That verse tells us the sum of the 28 verses of Hebrews chapter 7 are to teach us that we have a high priest like Melchizedek that is seated at the right hand of God who is ever living to make intercession for us. We have such a priest. And the such is referring to the multitude of arguments 
that Paul brings out in Hebrews 7. This is the sum of adding up everything I taught you in chapter 7. We have such a priest. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. It is interesting to watch the Apostle Paul work his way toward chapter 7. In chapter 2, he teaches about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 1, he mentions it. Now watch this. 5, 6. Hebrews 5, 6. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How about 5.10? Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. How about 6.20? Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Apostle Paul's pretty excited about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He mentions him 5.6, 5.10, and 6.20. He tells us in 5.11 why he's hesitating before he gets into detail about him. Because these Hebrew hearers were dull of hearing. He said, I have many things to tell you, but are hard to be uttered, seeing that you're so dull of hearing. And so I ask you today, are you sharp spiritually? Are you sharp and are you willing to submit and listen to the word of God and consider this wonderful subject of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's already gone before us. He's a forerunner. We're told there in verse 20, because he's already inside the veil in heaven now to appear in the presence of God for us. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, so that we can find out how little was taught us about Melchizedek. Because Paul's arguments are based on how little, not on how much. He, Genesis chapter 14. Our brother Abraham. Our father Abraham. took 318 trained servants and chased down four kings of the Assyrians and the Babylonians that had dared to come into the land of Canaan, who had already whipped five kings, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, and a couple of other cities, and had taken Lot and everything Lot owned captive. Abraham gets the news. He grabs his 318 trained servants and takes off after a pretty significant army that had come out of the land of Babylonia and had traveled a long way to be in the land of Canaan, and had just whipped five kings. He takes off after them with a couple of the Amorites who were his confederates in the matter. The Bible tells us he slaughtered those kings. We don't read the details of the battle, but we read that he came back from the slaughter of the kings. So God was with Abraham and blessed him mightily with his 318 trained servants. And we come to verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Genesis 14, 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. 
And he gave him tithes of all. Let's look at those three verses to see what the Holy Spirit teaches us in the historical record of Melchizedek. He was king of Salem. That is, he had a city-state, sort of like the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, and these other kings listed here, except the name of his city-state was Salem, which is peace, as we're going to learn in Hebrews 7. But the full name of his city is Jerusalem. We know that by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Because in Psalm 76, in verse 2, Jerusalem is called Salem, the shortened version. What does Jerusalem mean? The place of peace. What does Salem mean? Peace. Same meaning, Jerusalem, just the longer name. Sort of like Jehovah and Jah. As a long name and a short name of the God of heaven. So he's king of Salem. It tells us that he brought forth bread and wine. Now with my children last night, I chased that for just a second, but it's not worth much. But I'll just tell you, this king of Jerusalem ate bread and wine, ate bread and drank wine. Can you think of another king of Jerusalem that ate bread and drank wine? The Lord Jesus Christ. Because I want you to remember Luke chapter 7, 33 and 34. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. What did the Jews say of him? He hath a devil. The Lord Jesus Christ came eating bread and drinking wine. And what did they say of him? He's a glutton and a wine-bibber. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine for Abraham, and they have some sort of a communion service. Their common union in the worship of the one God of heaven. It tells us next about Melchizedek that he was the priest of the Most High God. This is one of the amazing little things of the sovereignty of God. This is all we're told. We got got one verse of prophecy, and Paul's going to argue from this and the one verse of prophecy. But he was the priest of the Most High God. God raised up a Canaanite named Melchizedek to be the priest in that part of the world for him before himself. God's able to do that. God is able to raise up a Rahab out of the ruins of Jericho. Praise his glorious name. He's able to take a Ruth out of the land of Moab. Praise his name. And he's able to take Melchizedek and make him the king of Jerusalem and the priest of the Most High God. Verse 19. And he blessed him. Who blessed who? Melchizedek blessed Abram. And you want to make sure you get that right, because Paul's going to make an argument from that. This isn't Abram blessing Melchizedek, but Melchizedek blessing Abram. He blessed him and said, here are the words of Melchizedek, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And so this priest of the Most High God is able to call a blessing down from Jehovah on Abram. Then he is able to return the favor and be the intercessor and return a blessing to God. In verse 20, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. He prays on behalf of Abraham to God, blessing him for the great victory. 
Now the last sentence of verse 20. And he gave him tithes of all. Who gave whom? You gotta, you gotta read a little bit. Don't, don't jump to conclusions there. Now you, I know you know the rest of the story, but what if you were just reading Genesis for the first time? He gave him tithes of all. You might not know. You might need the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible is a commentary for us. Right. When it says he gave him tithes of all, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek of all the spoils of the slaughter of the kings. That's what we learn from these three verses, and that is all that we're told about Melchizedek. Now, what didn't we learn? What's his genealogy? You know, every priest of the nation of Israel had a genealogy, a very precise genealogy. And if you couldn't prove that you were a son of Aaron, you couldn't be a priest in Israel. They had that problem in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 64 when they came back from the captivity in Babylon because they couldn't establish a proper genealogy for some of the men claiming to be priests, so they put them out of the priesthood. There's no genealogy given here. Who's his mother? Was she from Levi? Was his father from Levi? When was he born? Was he old enough to be a priest because you had to be 30 to be a priest? When did he die? Was he young enough to be a priest because you couldn't be a priest after 50? What was his pedigree? From whom did he descend? Did he come from Shem? Or did he come from Ham? <laughs> oh, now I know I'm cheating by going, and if we hadn't read Hebrews, do you know what darkness we would be in in Genesis 14? All we'd know is that this... Well, there was a priest, the Most High God, and he came out and Abraham and him got along pretty well with a meal of bread and wine. And Abraham gave him tithes and went on his way, and that's all we would know. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit of God, is going to argue from those three verses and one more that we're going to look at next. This is what we're told. We are going to take the Old Testament historical record of the books of Moses. We are going to take the prophecy of David And we are going to take the light and understanding of the Apostle Paul and put it all together and praise the Lord. Now, this is the sum of the things which we have spoken. We have such an high priest. We have someone right that's going to, that's greater than Melchizedek, but there are character traits in which he is like Melchizedek. This is all that the book of Moses has to say about him. Every other priest. For those of you that have read your Bible all the way through, you know there are those sections that you don't look forward to. Those sections you don't look forward to, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to the Word of God, are sometimes the genealogies of the priests to make sure that we understand that they came from Aaron right on down to Zadok and right on down past Zadok. I'm thinking of 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. There's no genealogy for Melchizedek. He doesn't appear anywhere in a genealogy like this is it right here. Now let's go to Psalm 110. Thank you, Lord, for Psalm 110. Approximately, approximately how long after Abraham and Melchizedek did David write Psalm 110? Just... Well, there was 430 years from Abraham to the giving of the law. 
according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17. And from the giving of the law until David, you know, is another several hundred years of the judges. So we've got a great period of time numbering around eight, nine hundred years of time between Abraham and Melchizedek and Psalm 110. This timing is of very great importance. And this is not the only argument that Paul makes, even in the book of Hebrews, about you understanding the order of Old Testament events. Abraham and Melchizedek came first in the historical account, and then this prophecy by David that there needed to be a priest. And in between, right smack in the middle, 430 years after Abraham was called out by God and given a promise, we have the setting up of the Levitical priesthood. But this prophecy comes after that Levitical priesthood, and that's of great importance. From when Moses set up the Levitical priests and ordained the sons of Aaron to be the priests over Israel, there was about 500 years until David wrote these words. They came later. You're going to need to remember that when we get to Hebrews 7. Verse 1, you should well know, the Lord, that is Jehovah God himself, said unto my Lord with the small O-R-D, that is the Lord Jesus Christ by prophecy, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That verse is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 22. Jesus came to the Pharisees and said, what think he, he was in a good frame of mind that day in Matthew 22. They'd been picking on him for, they'd been picking on him with a few doctrinal questions. And so he popped one for them. Amen. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They get all puffed up because they know Psalm 110 verse 1. Or other verses that tell us he's the son of David. He's the son of David. And Jesus said, well, why in Psalm 110 and verse 1 did David call him his Lord? If the Messiah that's coming is just David's son, why did David call him his Lord? Because it wasn't proper to call your son your Lord. Right. How much did they have to say? Nothing. They didn't have anything to say. And that's from Psalm 110 verse 1. He placed his argument. They knew that the Messiah that was coming, the Christ, had to be the son of David because the Bible testifies of that. The scepter shall not depart out of Judah until Shiloh come. But Jesus pointed out he's also David's Lord, and so he shut their mouths because they didn't have an answer for that explanation. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David, and he is the Lord of David because he's the Lord of heaven. Amen. But look at this, verse 4. The Lord, that is all caps, that is Jehovah God, has something else to say about the Lord Jesus Christ by way of prophecy. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. This is the only other reference to Melchizedek right here in Psalm 110. Moses gives us three verses of a historical record of his meeting Abraham. David records a prophecy for us in connection with the first verse. We can tell that it's speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That the Lord, Jehovah himself, had sworn. Don't forget that word. You're going to need it. 
the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm going to tell you now, and I will probably tell you several times, the most important word to understand Melchizedek and Jesus Christ's relationship to him is found here in the word forever. It is the word forever. The perpetual priesthood of Jesus Christ is the chief comparison between the two, Melchizedek and Jesus. And so I want you to get that word forever. Because every time it's quoted, every time Paul uses it, 5, 6, 5, 10, 6, 20, and several times in chapter 7, it follows just this order. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's come to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Paul has mentioned him in 5.6, 5.10, and 6.20. Now he's going to tell us about him. And he's going to make some comparisons. And you better not be too dull of hearing. Let's read the first sentence. It runs down through verse 3. Here we go. Thank you, blessed God, for your inspired scriptures and our brother Paul who wrote them down from you for us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. You can tell from the first sentence, the last few words, it is the perpetual priesthood of Jesus Christ that Paul is going to continue to come back to, but he's going to point out some other superior features of Jesus Christ by his comparison to Melchizedek over the priests of Levi and out of Aaron's loins. For this Melchizedek, we saw his name in Genesis and Psalms. He was king of Salem. Verse 2 is going to tell us that means king of peace. He was priest of the Most High God. We read that in Genesis chapter 14. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. We saw that there. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We saw that as well. All that's contained in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. I don't think I need to bore you or tire you by going through each of these phrases, although my outline does, because we've already understood those from Genesis chapter 14. There are wonderful things that can be said about the city of Jerusalem. There's things that can be said about the name Melchizedek. It's very interesting. Joshua took the city of Jerusalem almost 500 years later in the name of the king was Adonai Zedek. Now the Bible is going to tell us what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. There was a king still there 500 years later that was called Adonai Zedek. Adonai, and you know, I listen, this is, 
Just discard this if you don't even want to hear it. Adonai is the he, one of the Hebrew names for God. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteousness. There's still a Zedek. There's still a Zedek ruling over Jerusalem 500 years later from this man called Melchizedek. And we're told what Melchizedek means in our English Bibles. It means the king of righteousness. Is Jesus Christ a king? Amen. Is Jesus Christ a priest? Yep. So fitting for us to start out with this comparison of Melchizedek to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Melchizedek was a king and a priest, and so was our Lord and Savior. Verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. That was another thing we learned in Genesis chapter 14. Now we're told about his name and what it means, the Holy Spirit giving us an interpretation. First, being by interpretation, king of righteousness. That's his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And after that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. We have two words translated for us here by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. My king is righteous. Melchizedek. And then king of Salem. Shalom. Or other words like that that derive themselves from the Hebrew word for peace. And so the Holy Spirit gives it to us in English by way of Greek. In Hebrews chapter 7, he's called the king of Salem because he's the king of peace. Now, can we take just a second and talk about our Lord Jesus Christ? Is the Lord Jesus Christ the king of righteousness? Look at Jeremiah 23. And if we happen to have a shouting Baptist here today, I'd like to hear him. You hardly ever hear me say that. But Jeremiah chapter 23. Is Jesus Christ the king of righteousness? Jeremiah 23. Hurry. Jeremiah 23, behold, verse 5, Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Praise the Lord. Melchizedek means by interpretation from Hebrew through Greek to English, king of righteousness. What is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by prophecy? The Lord, our righteousness. Is he a king? According to verse 5, indeed he is. Is he the son of David that Psalm 110 told us about? Indeed he is. What kind of a king is he? He is a righteous branch and a king that would execute judgment and justice in the earth. That is a king of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect king of righteousness. And it's not just in his name. It is in all of his activities as king. He executes judgment and justice. Is Jesus Christ... A king of peace. How about Isaiah chapter 9? A verse you should know well. Especially for those of you that listen to the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. 
Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he will bear the responsibility of the monarch of this kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is a king called sometimes the prince of the kings of the earth. But he's the king of peace by being a prince of peace and by being a king. So we have a comparison already being formed in the hearts and minds of New Testament readers as they start down through Hebrews 7. Oh, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That little bit about Melchizedek back there in Genesis 14, only three verses long. And then the prophecy that God was going to raise up a priest to be after that order and to be like Melchizedek. I see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Hebrews 7. You know there's many verses that we could chase that would show that he is the king of righteousness many more times. And the king of peace many more times. We come to verse 3. Without father, without mother, Hebrews 7, 3, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Paul sort of gives himself away right off the bat, doesn't he? But he's already taught in the book that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so hereby saying Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God was no surprise for the readers that had paid attention from the first chapter forward. Right. Now the Son of God did not exist yet in his dual-natured person as the God-man and mediator of our salvation. The Son of God existed as the Word of God Amen. from eternity. Right. But the Son of God himself is the only begotten Son of God. It is the Word made flesh that hadn't been formed yet, but Melchizedek was made like unto him by having certain character traits and certain features about his existence and his person that line up with the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few verses, Paul's going to call it a similitude. There is a picture comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus, and that's what we're to be gathering Made like unto the Son of God. But what's made like unto the Son of God? And they're listed right here. Without father, without mother. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And in the middle there it said without descent. Abideth a priest continually. Abideth a priest continually are the most important words of the first sentence. They explain the comparison that's being made and they explain what Paul means when he says without father, without mother, without descent, neither beginning of days nor end of life. They are all pertaining to his priesthood, not his manhood. As a man, Melchizedek had a father, had a mother, had a beginning, had an end, and had a descent. There was a genealogy someplace But it wasn't recorded in the books of Moses. So as far as the Jews were concerned, and as far as the only authentical record on earth of anything, which is the word of God, he had no father, no mother, no descent, no beginning of days, no end of life. 
because his death isn't recorded, his birth wasn't recorded, his genealogy is not recorded, and neither is his father or his mother. So in the books of Moses, in which the genealogy of priests are listed carefully for the priests that come out of Levi, nothing is said about Melchizedek. And I want you to notice again, that if you ever read back over these and you're wondering, what does that mean? The key is in the last few words. Abideth a priest continually. It doesn't say he lives forever. It's he abides a priest. As far as you can tell, this mysterious priest of the Most High God comes out of Jerusalem, meets Abraham, does a few things with him, and then disappears from scriptural sight. Not from the sight of God and not from history. Don't get confused. We do not have an angel on earth named Melchizedek today. We do not have someone competing with the Son of God who had no earthly generation but was a priest of the Most High God. Paul is making an argument about his priesthood only. That is why we emphasize the words, abideth a priest continually. We don't know when he was made priest. We don't know when his priesthood ended. We don't know anything about his priesthood except this declaration by God himself. He was a priest of the Most High God. So when it says without father and without mother, it doesn't mean he didn't have a daddy and didn't have a mommy. It meant that as far as his priesthood was concerned, we have no record of him. So he can't be tied to the tribe of Levi and all the genealogical records that limited the priests that came out of Aaron's loins. In the time they could start, the time they could end, who their father and mother were, who their descent was, because of their descent, and their mommy and the daddy weren't the right people, they couldn't be priests. We don't have any of that about Melchizedek. He is a perpetual priest before God without any other records. Now you say, that is hard to, that is hard to grasp. That is why we have Hebrews chapter 6 and the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 5. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you, which be the first, again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Right. And he mentions some of those oracles. They're in chapter 6, verse 1. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptism, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are principles of the oracles of God. But if you want to get a little deeper... We're going to go to three. This is not me speaking. This is the Apostle Paul. And, I, and I'm on my knees before the God of heaven asking the Holy Spirit to make sure we interpret these verses exactly as Paul intended them. But he's already warned us this is not light treading. Right, right. I have things to tell you. I have many things to tell you. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 5. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered seeing ye are dull of hearing. So you've got to concentrate and watch the Apostles Paul, Paul's very tight, logical reasoning out of what is said about Melchizedek and what is not said about Melchizedek. Right. Nothing was said about where he came from or where he went and pertaining to his priesthood that leaves him a mysterious priest that from all appearances in the law, books of Moses, still a priest. Because there's no end to him. Recorded in the word of God. Remember again, we take three verses and connect them to Psalm 110. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David, David was recording already a prophecy based on that one word. Melchizedek didn't have any end that was recorded. And neither will the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made a priest forever. 
abideth a priest continually. It doesn't say he abides a citizen of Jerusalem. He abides a priest because there is no record of it ending. There's no instruction that when Melchizedek turned 50, he had to turn it over to his son. Nothing like that about him. You've got to understand that Scripture is the only record of real priests. No other book compares to the Bible. And the Jews knew that full well. They knew that the books of Moses described priesthood in graphic, careful detail. We know all about Aaron and his sons. We know how his sons died. We know who they begat. And we know the line of the priest that came out of him. But when it comes to Melchizedek, there is none of that. So as far as the genealogical records and the testimony and witness of God's word, Melchizedek is just a priest out there for as long as God wanted him to be a priest. Without any limit that we know about. Although we know he was just a man. If we were talking about him just as a man, but we're talking about his priesthood not having any record in the books of Moses. Now we come to a new argument. That was just a one-sentence introduction that Melchizedek, what was said about him, we need to grasp from Genesis 14, and what was not said about him, we need to grasp from Genesis 14, because both of them are important to comparing Jesus Christ to Melchizedek. Now consider, after the introduction, Paul says in verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. An argument's about to proceed from Paul by the Holy Spirit that when we read that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, that proves that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham when it comes to religious matters. You know, Abraham may have been able to whip Jerusalem with his 318 trained servants, but when it came to things pertaining to God, Melchizedek was Abraham's superior. Because the, the whole principle of tithes are those who deal in carnal things give their carnal things to the spiritual man who operates for them with God, especially in the Old Testament. That's just a principle. And so Paul's going to argue from that. And he argues from it in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even... This is the most extreme case that could exist. Even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Paul is writing a book called Hebrews because he is writing to people who are Hebrews. One of the greatest lessons of understanding the book of Hebrews. And he's writing this to people who highly esteem one particular man above all others. Abraham. That's why he uses the word even. Even Abraham. The most extreme case that we could take of your past religion, you Hebrews, is Abraham is the father of you all, and you put so much trust in him. Remember when John the Baptist appeared in the scene in Matthew chapter 3? He said, think not within yourselves that you have Abraham to be your father. God is able to raise up children to Abraham out of these stones. That's proof of nothing. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you think Abraham's your father? If Abraham were your father, you'd act like Abraham. Year, year of the year, children of the devil, year of your father, the devil, in John eight forty four. The Jews put their trust in Abraham, and so Paul uses the argument: consider how great this man was, because even your father Abraham, in whom you trust, 
or in whom you trusted in times past in the Jews' religion, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, proving that Melchizedek was superior to him. That Abraham was a carnal man dealing in carnal things, giving a tenth of what he obtained from his battle to Melchizedek to deal in spiritual things with God. And he'll proceed further. That's verse 4. Now Abraham, Abraham walked with God and was the friend of God. Abraham built altars and God received those sacrifices. God appeared to Abraham by visions and God was the exceeding great reward of Abraham. Abraham was a great man of faith. Abraham was a great religious man. But Melchizedek was his superior. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because Jesus Christ is superior to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Aaron, and any priest that came out of Aaron. He'll, Paul's going to teach us a rule about tithes in the, tribe of, in, the, in the nation of Israel, verse 5. And verily, that is of a certain truth. It is a certain truth and a rule that you can trust. They that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. It is a rule of religious service. Paul's dealing with the law of Moses. It's a rule of religious service that those men who dedicate their lives to serving God as priests have a commandment to take tithes of the rest of the people. When the rest of the people bring their offerings to God, the priests were able to take a tenth of all the produce of the nation to support the tribe of Levi and, to the, and the priesthood. And it's a law of Moses and a certain thing that those Levitical priests that came out of Levi and Aaron had the right to do that. They had the right to be elevated above their brethren and to be supported and paid by their brethren because they were in service to God. Verily, this is a rule of the law that you people know well. Verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Before we get to the blessing, just look at the tithes. Melchizedek did not come out of Levi. Melchizedek did not come out of Aaron. Only those that came out of Levi had a right by the law of Moses to take tithes of the rest of the nation. But he, that man that came several hundred years earlier in Genesis 14, took tithes of Abraham even though he didn't descend from Levi. Where did this man get such rights? Is what's being implied by our brother's argument. Consider how great this man is. It takes a specific commandment of God in order for Levi and the men of the tribe of Levi to have the right to get a tithe from the other tribes. It takes a specific commandment of God. Have a commandment to take those tithes, verse 5. But Melchizedek, who did not descend from Levi, had no such commandment. He received tithes of Abraham anyway. How great this man must be. As great as Aaron was over the rest of the nation when it came to dealing with God, so was Melchizedek over Abraham in dealing with God. Right. Then the last part of verse 6 tells us, And blessed him that had the promises. 
Abraham had great promises. A perpetual land for an eternal inheritance. A multitudinous family that exceeded the stars of heaven in number. The defeat of all his enemies. And blessing upon all nations. Abraham had all those promises given to him. And yet there's a man that was greater than him because that man blessed him. And verse 7 gives us the rule. And without all contradiction, no one can say anything against this. The less is blessed of the better. Whenever a man gives a blessing, the better man is giving the blessing because he's calling something down from heaven upon the other man that that man himself cannot call down from heaven. The less is best blessed of the better. So Melchizedek, consider how great this man was. Abraham paid him tithes and Melchizedek blessed Abram by calling down God's favor upon him. And there's no contradiction to this principle and rule. The less is blessed the better. The man who brings the blessing down from heaven is greater than the man that receives the blessing. And so Melchizedek is greater than Abraham again by his blessing, the man that had the promises. And see, every Jew, every Hebrew knew that Abraham was a great man in his own right because he had all the great promises given to him by God. And yet the man with all the promises was blessed by a greater man named Melchizedek. What's the Apostle Paul doing? He is proceeding to teach us about Melchizedek versus Abraham in whom the Jews trusted. And the Lord Jesus Christ is made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so that Jesus Christ is superior to Abraham and everyone in whom the Hebrews trusted. But we're going to proceed to where we see things that apply to us Gentiles as well in the following verses of this chapter that tell us how great a man Melchizedek was and how great a high priest the Lord Jesus Christ is and how he is able to save us to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Let us take a break at this point.